Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shear, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, we're back in the early days of the Roman Empire, exploring one of the most infamous events of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, the Great Fire of Rome. If you know anything about the fire, it's probably the popular phrase, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. If that wasn't enough to clue you in, we'll be learning about how Nero dealt with this tragic event, including debunking several theories that used to be widely circulated. This episode is also going to take a quick jump into, in what any other show would probably be a whole episode, or you could take an entire college class, on how Christians were treated in the early Roman Empire. Spoiler alert, not very kindly, in the slightest. And I'll only glance over it today, because Christianity and Rome are fairly connected, so we'll definitely have time to dig into that in a future episode. But for now, let's dive into this massive, tragic event in Roman history. We're going back in time to the Roman Empire in the year 64 CE, and Nero fiddles with fire. So before I start with the story for today, I'll spoil just a little bit of the later story. In the aftermath of the fire, Nero decided to place blame on the Christian population in Rome. That's why I brought up the topic of Christianity within the Roman Empire earlier. So yeah, let's talk about their treatment in the early Roman Empire, as well as just the religion of the empire as a whole. Obviously, at some point, Rome would become Christian, what with Vatican City being smack dab in the middle of the present-day city. That's a future episode, so we'll just focus on Roman religion during and slightly before the 1st century CE. Or maybe I should refer to it as AD if we're talking Christianity. Before Rome became Christian, its religion was polytheistic, the worship of many gods. A lot of people often joke that Roman polytheism is just Greek polytheism with different names. Rome Jupiter is Zeus, Mars is Ares, so on and so on. While this is kind of true, it's also a very watered-down version of the truth. Roman polytheism is mostly Etruscan polytheism with different names. The Etruscans were another ancient major civilization living in Italy who the Romans would eventually conquer in order to become the main players in that part of the world. The Etruscans were the ones who basically stole Greek polytheism for their own. However, Rome still had many other deities, including gods who were completely Roman in origin, such as the god Quirinus, and other deities from different cultures, such as the horse goddess Epona from Gaul, the Roman name for the area that's now France. However, this was not the only religion of the Roman Republican Empire. There was also a population of Jewish citizens, as well as slaves, within the Roman Empire. Jews had lived in Rome for quite some time by this point. In fact, Rome was probably one of the first European cities to have a Jewish population. Some historians suggest that the Jewish population in Rome might have been as high as 10% of the total population. However, Judaism in Rome was not without its hardships, seeing as the religion was not formally recognized as an official religion of Rome until Julius Caesar was in charge. When the Republic fell and Augustus established the Roman Empire, he upheld this religious tolerance. But even though this would take place a few years after our story of the Great Fire, 
tensions would increase between the Jewish population and Rome until it erupted in the Jewish-Roman Wars, a series of conflicts that would last for almost 70 years, starting in 66 CE. Obviously, this time period is just after the development of Christianity as a religion. Most of the Christian population at this point would have been former Jews who converted to the teachings of Jesus. However, this also led to the widespread belief in Rome that Christianity was just a different sect of Judaism. Nonetheless, Christians were more often the recipients of religious scrutiny and persecution than the Jewish population in Rome. So why is that? There are a couple theories centered around this. The first theory is about the monotheistic nature of Christianity, though this theory should also therefore apply to Judaism as well. Starting with Julius Caesar, Roman leaders upon their deaths were granted the divine status of gods and were worshipped accordingly. By the time of Nero, emperors were basically living gods in their own rights, which also meant that they were to be worshipped as gods during their lifetime. Well, in Christianity there is only one god, and it sure wasn't Emperor Nero. And obviously with the everything about the Roman emperors post-Augustus, if you didn't follow their rules, that was your death sentence. The second theory centers around Roman laws about religion. As far as regulation and religious laws went in Rome, there wasn't much. However, a law created during the Republic period forbade the creation of alien cults. It didn't matter which gods you worshipped as long as they got the Roman stamp of approval, probably a red circle with a wolf or SPQR stamped on it. Judaism was tolerated, but it had also been developed before Rome was a city. This new religion, at least to the Romans, would definitely have been considered alien. Though we'll be touching on Nero's treatment of Christianity this episode, he was far from the only emperor who would allow mass persecution towards the then-religious minority. In fact, in the mid-3rd century, the emperor Decian ordered the first officially sanctioned persecution of Christians. Even before then, it was widely recorded that during different reigns, depending on the emperor, someone could be arrested simply for belonging to the new religion. Though Christianity had only existed since the reign of Tiberius three emperors earlier, Nero is well known in historical circles for his incredibly harsh treatment of Christians, up to the point of being known as the Antichrist by early Christians. Let's move on to our next topic before we get into the story proper, fires in Rome. The event I'll be covering is referred to as the Great Fire of Rome, but it was far from the first major fire within the city. In fact, there had been six large-scale fires in the city since the beginning of the first century CE. After the first fire in 6 CE, Emperor Augustus introduced a group called the Cohortes Vigiles. This new group acted as the night watch and firefighters of Rome. Previously, there had only been the Vigiles Urbani, a group of a similar nature that operated during the day. This new group of Vigiles would continue the job during the night. How do Imperial Roman firefighters compare to those in the modern day? Well, surprisingly, they did have fire trucks of a sort. These fire engines, known as CIFO, 
were essentially large water pumps pulled around by horses. They'd bring these to the fires, where they would fill buckets that they would then throw onto the fire. The water, not the buckets. Besides water buckets, the Vigiles had a few other solutions for fighting fire. They would also use a chemical solution made with vinegar called acetum, which again, they would throw onto the fire. They also used water-soaked blankets to smother the flames. And finally, and perhaps a more common form of Roman firefighting, was simply using hooks and ropes to tear down burning buildings in order to prevent the flames from spreading to other buildings. The Vigiles also set up public recommendations for fire safety among the Roman citizens. While the Vigiles themselves couldn't reinforce these rules, negligence to follow them could result in corporal punishment. So Rome had firefighters, and yet the Great Fire destroyed upwards of 70% of the city. How did this happen? How did the Vigiles let it get that far? And what did Nero actually do during the blaze? Let's find out and travel to that midsummer July night. It was the night of July 19th in the year 64. Historical sources, primarily the historian Tacitus, who was eight years old at this time, say it was a windy night in the city. We go now to the neighborhood around the Circus Maximus, meaning Greatest Circus. And unfortunately, this is not the type of circus you're thinking of. No big top tent, no clowns. But there were horses because the circus in Rome was a horse racing stadium. According to Tacitus, the fire began in a shop located near the slums between the Caelian and Palatine hills. The houses and shops, all mostly made of wood, lit up quickly, allowing the fire to proceed further north. Despite the best efforts of the Vigiles, the fire continued to grow larger and larger, not just because fire and wood are a dangerous combo, but also due to gangs who purposely threw torches into the inferno. The fire continued for six whole days before it was brought under control. However, things got out of hand when the fire reignited and burned for an additional three days. At the end of it all, seven of Rome's 14 districts were completely destroyed, with another four damaged. Major buildings, including the Temple of the Vestal Virgins, a temple to Jupiter, and even Nero's palace were devastated by the flames. In the aftermath of the death and destruction, Nero led efforts to rebuild the ravaged city while also being quick to blame the destruction of his city on the new religious minority within Rome, the Christians. But this quick action on his part led to rumors that Nero himself had the fire started in order to persecute Christians and rebuild the city in his image. And of course, these accusations would continue through history. Roman historian Suetonius would go on to record that Nero watched the city burn from a tower while playing music. The origin of the phrase, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. So let's jump over to Nero now. First, I want to make a correction to something I said in the Julio-Claudian family tree episode. In that episode, I said Nero was assassinated. However, Nero actually committed suicide, 
though this was done because he believed, rightfully so, that the people of Rome were planning to kill him. We won't go into the reasons why today. The end of Nero's reign is an episode for a later date. You might be wondering why I decided to jump all the way to the Great Fire in Nero when we have yet to cover any other emperor on this show. Almost shamefully, I'll admit that I really love Nero. Not in an admirable way, mind you. He's an absolutely monstrous individual who absolutely never should have been emperor. No, this is more like Nero's entire reign being a dumpster fire that you can't look away from. Well, the entire Julio-Claudian dynasty was mostly a dumpster fire. Caligula was a rainbow dumpster fire. Nero, however, is like a dumpster on fire that then spills over, revealing that it was full of gasoline that spreads across the city and burns it down. <clears throat> so, I wanted to tell a story about him first before any other Roman emperor. I promise the next Julio-Claudian episode will start towards the beginning. Not to completely ruin the great expression that is, Nero fiddled while Rome burned, but it's completely false for a couple reasons. First, and least important, is that the fiddle did not even exist in first century Rome. While Nero was a singer and musician, he played the lyre, basically a handheld harp. The second, more important fact is that Nero was not even in Rome when the fire was started. He was, at least according to what the more believable historians say, over 30 miles away in the city of Antium. Also, just as a fun fact, Nero was only 26 years old at the time of the fire. Not to try to give him any credit, but imagine yourself in your mid-twenties, or maybe someone else in their mid-twenties, having to deal with most of a city burning down. At the time of this episode premiering, I'm 27 years old. I have absolutely zero idea how I would deal with this. But let's say for a moment that Nero was, in fact, the man behind the fire, if not the one person who actually started the first flames. He wasn't, but let's just explore why he would do that for right now. One of the most common theories in this line of thinking is that Nero hated the architecture of Rome. Yeah, apparently Nero wanted to redesign Rome as a more modern city, adding in plenty of personal properties and monuments for himself. I'm definitely planning a future episode for all of Nero's weird personal projects, so we'll pass over most of that for now. However, in the wake of the fire, the emperor led a massive effort to rebuild the city, in which it did receive a much more modern first century makeover. Apparently, he had been wanting this for a while, but even though he was emperor and basically a god, he still had to deal with the Roman Senate. So in order to get around bureaucracy, Nero did away with politics and simply set a torch to Rome for his infrastructure dreams. That is again if he was the one to set it on fire. The people who believe Nero either personally started the fire or hired others to start it usually also throw in the rumor that Nero paid off the Vigiles to let the fire rage for much longer than it needed to. This would explain why the fire originally burned for almost a week and then started up again for several more days. And obviously, to enjoy his own handiwork, Nero would have watched over the city from one of his palaces while playing the lyre and singing. 
A common song choice among Roman historians for Nero's epic bonfire playlist was The Sack of Ilium, a lyrical poem detailing the destruction of Troy in the final moments of the Trojan War, a very fitting song choice. Unfortunately, as I'll keep reminding you, this did not happen. Even though Nero is remembered as a monster, as he should be, his efforts after the fire to rebuild the city were actually probably one of the greatest things he did as emperor. If his desire was in fact to modernize the city, he did a very good job with that. Houses in Rome no longer used wood as their main structural source. Instead, they used a great new invention of fired clay bricks. And by new, I mean new for Rome because the Greeks had been using fired clay bricks for a while by that point. And these bricks were actually very good. I know when you think of ancient Roman architecture and the ruins left today, you probably think big slabs of white marble. However, if you actually go to Rome, which fortunately I have, you'll actually be able to find a lot of buildings from the imperial age that are made of brick and still mostly standing. Can you imagine if you were to somehow travel 2,000 years into the future and still see a building from modern times still standing? Besides the new snazzy brick houses, Nero also made it so houses were more spread apart so that fires could not easily jump from house to house. Unfortunately, with massive financial projects comes massive financial costs. In order to pay for all these cool new buildings, Nero had to make some pretty hefty economical decisions. First and most obvious was to raise taxes on all the provinces of the empire. I'm sure that the people living way out in Roman-occupied Britain were thrilled to have their taxes raised to rebuild the capital city most of them had probably never been to. However, another unexpected event happened in the rebuilding process. Nero, for the first time in the history of the empire, devalued the Roman currency. Devaluation is the deliberate downward adjustment of a nation's currency. If you make money cost less, eventually massive project costs will go down. Also, know that Roman money was made of real gold and silver, the aureus and denarius respectively. In order to devalue Roman currency, Nero ordered that the actual coins were to use less gold and silver. Both coins were now made about half a gram lighter. That may not sound like much for a single coin, but it definitely adds up when you consider the entire currency circulation in the empire. Also, denarii were to be made from a less pure source of silver. Silver purity dropped from around 99.5% to 93.5%. But houses weren't the only thing Nero built. As I mentioned earlier, Nero's palace, the Domus Transitoria, was either heavily damaged or outright destroyed in the fire. Where on earth was he going to live? Nero's new palace was to be called the Domus Aurea, literally translating to House of Gold. I know I said I wanted to avoid most of Nero's obnoxious building projects for this episode, but the Domus Aurea is usually pointed to among conspiracy theorists for why Nero would have set fire to Rome. Also, it allows me to take this moment to go on a personal tangent. Currently, the Domus Aurea is an active archaeological dig site, but you can also go on tours of Nero's second palace. 
When my family went on vacation to Rome back in 2018, one of the things on our list of things to do was see the Domus Aria. If you haven't been to Rome before, let me tell you something you might not know. The streets of that city are chaos. They're crowded with Roman citizens, tourists, and people trying to scam you out of money. And on top of that, they also curve every which way in a very confusing maze. Also, hey dad, if you're listening to this, sorry, but I'm gonna throw you under the bus for a moment. Hope you've enjoyed the show so far. The apartment we were staying in was right next to the Pantheon, which is a very old temple in Rome that's now a church. The Pantheon is a short hike northwest of the Colosseum. The Domus Aurea is right next to the Colosseum on the northeast side. However, the streets around the Colosseum, arguably one of, if not the most, famous buildings in the entire world, are always completely jam-packed with people. So, while there's technically a direct path, it's always blocked by a wall of tourists. Also, we were there during a major bicycle race in Italy that was passing through Rome on that day, though I don't think we knew about that, so it was even more crowded. So my dad used GPS on his phone to try to get us to Nero's Golden Palace, and technically he did, but we were standing on top of it instead of in front of it. The Domus Aria is very old and has, in the nearly 2,000 years since it was built, been buried by time with both dirt, streets, and homes. So while a GPS marker might say we were at the Domus Aria, we were in fact in the middle of a park. The actual entrance to the site was a couple blocks over down a hill. Anyway, we ended up being late to our appointment and missed out on getting our tour to the palace. However, the people at the gate said there were available times for a later tour, but it would be in Italian. Also, there would only be two tickets available. So the two tickets ended up going to me and my sister, who is maybe as big a fan of the Julio-Claudians as I am. While I could only understand maybe two or three words of that tour in Italian, it didn't matter if I understood what the tour guide was saying. Nero's palace is extravagant. Its ceilings are about the same height as most churches, and everything is covered in mosaics and murals, most of which are broken or faded to time. There are so many rooms you go through, and so many more that are still yet to be uncovered in the archaeological digs. However, the thing that has stuck with me the most is one of the final stops on the tour. You enter a room that was probably a vestibule or some sort of similar room. Again, the tour was in Italian, and I don't speak Italian and one of the walls is caved in. In the room are a bunch of square cushion chairs, and under the seat of each is a VR headset. The tour then continues in VR, where they talk about the room and, as the narration goes on, begins to rebuild the room as to how it most likely looked during the reign of Emperor Nero. The VR tour then moves forward out of the room, as if you were Nero himself walking forward, until you enter on a balcony overlooking the city of Rome in the 1st century CE. Honestly, if you like archaeology or history, which I'm hoping you do if you're listening to this, definitely go on the tour of the Domus Aria if you're given the chance. Okay, so that was a long personal tangent, but let's jump back to some actual learning. Construction on the palace began soon after the Great Fire ended in 64 CE. It only took about four years to almost finish it, which was a very fast time for a project like that in ancient times, but Nero died before he saw its completion, 
After the Emperor's death, the palace was seen as the pinnacle of Nero's vanity and decadence. Though later emperors would actually add onto the structure, sections of the Domus Aurea were immediately filled up with dirt and stripped of all the decorations, including marble statues, jewels, and ivory. Around the end of the first century, the Domus Aurea was completely covered over, and it was eventually lost to time. It would be rediscovered 1300 years later, when a Roman man fell through a hole on the Esquiline Hill. It was immediately beset upon by Renaissance artists, including Raphael and Michelangelo. However, the walls and murals of the Domus had been preserved in the prior centuries because it had been hidden beneath the earth. Now with the palace open to the air, the incredible art on the walls began to fade over the next centuries up until the modern day. Also, the Domus Aurea is in danger of completely collapsing. As I said, there's a park located above it, and it's buried beneath dirt. Trees in the park are growing into the roof in places, and the dirt and other park amenities are weighing down the entire structure. There are plans to try to replace the park in order to preserve the palace, but things seem to just be a game of chance at this point. Almost 650 square feet of ceiling collapsed in 2010. However, restoration efforts are in effect, though who can say for sure if they'll be entirely effective. So you know how I said if you haven't seen the Domus Aurea and really want to see the spectacle of it? You might want to plan that trip to Rome sooner rather than later, just in case it no longer exists in a few decades. The Great Fire was a major turning point in the history of the early Roman Empire. It allowed Rome to be rebuilt as a modern first century city with better precautions against future fire outbreaks. Nero to further indulge in his vices that would partly lead to his eventual downfall and created one of the first major attacks on Christianity in Roman history. While this was far from the first and worst attack on the new religion, it allowed the imperial system to realize this was something an emperor could do if so desired. And these attacks would last for the next 250 years until Rome itself became a Christian empire under Emperor Constantine. We'll continue slash begin Nero's story at a later date. We'll put the Julio-Claudians on hold for a bit to explore lesser known rulers. Because I'm sure there are plenty of people interested in Roman rulers, the plan now is to continue the Julio-Claudian saga every five episodes until it's over. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and subscribe to the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. We're going to stick with both Rome and Christianity next time when we jump forward almost a millennium and a half to explore the life and reign of one of Catholicism's most infamous popes, Rodrigo Borgia, papal name Alexander VI. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, whoa, whoa.